Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The 1918 flu outbreak was deadly, infecting an estimated 500 million people around the world, according to the CDC. About 50 million worldwide died including about 675,000 in the United States. Around this time, 102 years ago, the United States was in a similar position as it is today. The influenza pandemic of 1918 was raging, and it was time to send kids back to school. Public health officials nationwide debated whether that was possible and largely decided no. That is, except for New York, Chicago, and New Haven. Today, historian and physician Dr. Howard Markell joins me to discuss what 1918 can teach us about sending students back to classrooms in the middle of a pandemic. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. Dr. Howard Markell is the director of the Center for the History of Medicine at the University of Michigan. He and a group of other researchers have been studying the data showing how 43 cities responded to the 1918 pandemic. He was also a professor of mine back in medical school. I like the beard. Well, you know, it's my COVID beard. Uh, (laughs) I shall not shave until this is over. (laughs) Physician, trim thyself. (laughs) I'm kind of letting the the hair grow a little crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so here's the deal, Professor. When your beard is shaved and my hair is cut, I think America can uh, can feel like we've, we've turned a corner. Say, we could all sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Markell has been a guest on this podcast before. When we spoke back in March, we talked about the historical context of this pandemic and how he thought at the time this coronavirus didn't seem to present an existential threat. Here's what he said back then. It's not 1918. <laughs> not even close. So I started off by asking him, If he still thinks that, if he still thinks that six months into this pandemic, that it's nothing like what happened in 1918. Well, well, I was wrong. You've just presented excellent evidence why historians should never predict anything. If it's not as bad as 1918, and I'm hoping that will be the case, it'll be right up there in the top five pandemics in terms of number of cases and number of deaths worldwide. So it has become an existential threat uh, compared to those very early days when lots of us, uh, uh, and myself included, were very optimistic and hopeful that this thing would uh, burn itself out by the warm weather as other coronaviruses, such as the SARS virus, did in 2003. There's all sorts of things you have to sort of predict in a situation like this, and that can be challenging, as you're pointing out. But I'm curious now, do you think that the unpredictability was more the virus or our response to it, human behavior, was the more unpredictable variable here? Wow. Well, all the above. It's an excellent question. And, you know, you have to remember there are lots of actors 
in a pandemic. Uh, it's a social, living, breathing laboratory. Uh, the main actor, of course, is the uh, microbe itself, which is uh, quite stealthy and unpredictable, and we're learning as we go along how to deal with it. But people react very differently uh, in different parts of this country as well as around the world. I have never seen a more divisive or politicized pandemic uh, than the way it's uh, playing out here in the United States. Uh, and so, too, this is really the first uh, computerized or Internet pandemic uh, of of global importance. I mean, there was the 2009 flu pandemic, but thankfully that did not turn out to be all that lethal. The internet has not just democratized information, it's almost atomized it. And we're all getting our own little sources of news. And then there's social media, which uh, amplifies and spreads rumors or good information or bad information uh, at the speed of electrons, which some of which has become almost as virulent as the virus itself. It really is uh, r- remarkable. I mean, when you lay it out like that, Professor, I, I, I do want to talk about schools. You live in a, in a college town, but now the coronavirus is converging with the back-to-school season. This isn't the first time a pandemic has interrupted education. So w- what happened in 1918 during the same sort of season? So in 1918, particularly during the fall of 1918 and the winter of 1919, where those were the two worst waves, if you will. That's a metaphor, by the way. I don't think flu travels in waves. It just, it circulates. And um, the cities that incorporated school closure and uh, also uh, layered those with other social distancing measures, uh, quarantine of the suspects, uh, isolation of the ill, and public gathering bans did far better in terms of cases uh, and deaths than those that did not. They also had to uh, implement those measures early and do them for a long period of time because these measures then, as today, don't cure the virus. They don't make you immune from the virus. You're simply hiding from it for a while, hoping to buy time until modern medicine comes up with something effective in the form of a vaccine or, say, a set of antivirals. When you think about how crowded uh, a classroom is compared to one's home, uh, it's a no-brainer. I mean, kids are sitting close together. Uh, Little kids have what's called poor respiratory hygiene. Uh, They slobber and sneeze all over each other. So uh, the better part of valor for a lot of school districts, including Ann Arbor, is to go long distance. Now, having said that, uh, I'll put on my pediatrician's hat, there's no question for a child or a young adult that in-person schooling is a far better way of learning. It's a far better form of socialization. Uh, It's a far better way of life. I mean, that's where kids belong. But these are not normal times. I've never had a a patient come back to me and said, hey, Dr. Markell, you told me it was better to be safe than sorry I want my money back. Uh, But some school districts are going back to school. And here's another issue. Some kids are actually safer out of the home because of abusive situations. And we also have homeless children who go to public schools, so they are safer in a classroom. But it's really a risk versus benefit kind of a ratio. And for me, I believe that it's safer to go long distance for now. 
you, you, you go back and look at 1918, and most schools closed in the fall of 1918, but at least three big cities kept schools open, Chicago, New York, and New Haven. How did that work out for them? What's interesting about Chicago is the absenteeism rate was through the roof. So even though it wasn't a uh, 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 health-mandated school closure, it was a de facto school closure because the kids weren't showing up. In New York City, um, uh, the health commissioner, Royal Copeland, who was a University of Michigan grad, I might say, uh, felt that kids were safer in school and that they could uh, uh, control the epidemic uh, by uh, quarantining and isolation. Uh, he was kind of right. He was kind of wrong. New York didn't have a terrible record uh, that fall and winter, but they didn't have a great record in terms of cases and uh, deaths. And, and New Haven, which is a far smaller city, uh, it's a college town, uh, home of Yale University, uh, they had mixed results as well. Uh, but these were the outliers. That's important to know. These were the outliers in 1918, 1919. Most of the cities in America did close their schools. So w- what are we to, to take away from that then? I mean, should would the better sense of, of valor be the fall of 2020, based on what we learned over 100 years ago, that at least for the time being, schools should be closed? Well, yes, uh, as long as we can make sure that uh, kids are getting their nutrition if they're in a school lunch or breakfast program, that they're being well taken care of at home, uh, that they have internet access and computers to use that. These are a lot of logistic factors that need to be uh, taken in mind. But not just because of historical evidence, which is something that I deal with all the time, but because of contemporary public health evidence, which is showing that uh, these are helpful. And where we don't know what's going on, uh, per se, with the virus, we don't yet have a vaccine. We are very close to 200,000 deaths. Uh, I don't think we can uh, uh, take uh, risk. Uh, I would also argue that colleges and universities, which are very different because some of the students live in dormitories, which is not normal social distancing behavior, no matter what they do. And we've already seen at University of Alabama, University of North Carolina, Notre Dame, we have seen upticks in cases. And so to me, uh, colleges and universities ought to take uh, great Uh, credence of those universities and follow suit. When you go back and you look historically at 1918, were there any lasting effects on children's education? Was there a certain age group or generation in particular that suffered from those school closures? So, for example, in terms of home care, most mothers in America were homemakers. They did not work outside of the home. And so that was one issue uh, that was taken care of. Uh, But And also, this feels like it's going to be a much longer school closure uh, than in 1918. And of course, high school students, uh, it's a very important part of their lives, the four years you spend in high school, not just socially, but uh, the testing that you must do, the applications to college, uh, where you want to go, what you want to be. That's very important. And college education, of course, is, is very important uh, for one's professional life. Um, so it'll be hard to predict 
uh, will there be untoward effects or uh, educational uh, holes uh, in this generation of students' lives compared to others? Back then, no, but life went on as uh, normal. I mean, don't forget what happened after 1919. It's called the Roaring Twenties. And uh, there was a great era of popular culture, of economic boom, of uh, job creation, uh, uh, and, and so on. Uh, that shows that people did not spend a lot of time uh, uh, cowering uh, in the fear of another pandemic. When when the flu pandemic happened 100 years ago, we, we already had knowledge of the flu. Uh, coronavirus we have knowledge of as well, but this has been a very novel sort of situation, how this virus uh, has behaved in people's bodies. What exa- We're learning a lot as we go along. How much of a difference do you think that made, just the, the sort of uh, existing knowledge around the virus back then versus the lack of a lot of that knowledge now? Well, let me play teacher and correct you just a bit. We, we didn't really know much about flu at all in 1918. We didn't know anything about virology. We didn't know it was caused by a virus because we couldn't even measure or have the methods to look at viruses. In fact, people thought, experts thought it was caused by the bacterium Haemophilus influenzae. And they actually made vaccines against that. They were junky vaccines. And of course, they wouldn't work because it was the wrong uh, virus, I mean, the wrong uh, microbe. But uh, the medical treatment for uh, influenza in 1918 was uh, basically a bed and perhaps a nurse uh, making you feel more comfortable. There were no IV fluids. Uh, there were no antivirals. There were no antibiotics because most people who died got sick because they had secondary bacterial pneumonia because they were lying around and their lungs were filled with fluid and so on. Uh, so medical care was, you know, compared to today, uh, prehistoric. It just didn't really exist. So that, to me, is a very good comparison to this novel coronavirus, because in a way, we are yanked back into the 1918 era in that we don't know much about it. We are learning how to treat it, uh, even though we have far more advanced and intensive care uh, methodologies. And we are trying to create a vaccine uh, uh, for a very novel virus. That's why we are using these old-fashioned methods of social distancing, because uh, it's a worst-case scenario type of pandemic. It is the nuclear option of public health tools, and the only reason we're taking them out is that it is so ubiquitous, it's so widely spread, and it is so deadly. And how, how do you piece this all together when you think about the impending flu season now? Uh, schools opening up, flu season, you know, in the next uh, several weeks. What do you think is going to happen? Well, what I hope happens is that we all get our flu shots. And I highly recommend, and I'll say it three times, get your flu shot, get your flu shot, get your flu shot. And, uh, uh, you know, there's this term twindemic. Uh, so I do worry about the spread of seasonal flu. It doesn't look like uh, that the seasonal flu, that the strains that we're seeing are that deadly, but of course, influenza can make you quite ill. And one can fuel the other. I mean, you could get sick with one of them and then get infected with the other and get very sick and or die. So uh, this is something we want to prevent at, at, at all costs. So uh, again, uh, the simple answer is get your flu shot. And, and hopefully some of these other public hygiene measures you're talking about make a difference with regard to the spread of flu as well. I mean, obviously, people should stay home if they're sick, 
but but you know people wearing masks going out in public can help even for people who who may be carrying at least the coronavirus and not know it could help mitigate the spread of the flu virus as well let's face it <laughs> if we're really honest we are a very dirty nation <laughs> we don't wash our hands all that often we don't cover our sneezes uh, we have to do all that yeah well, Professor, thank you very much. And, and uh, you know, you've reached out to a lot of students over the years. I'm one of them. You, you touched me deeply. And so thank you very much, sir. It's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. Keep doing your job. If you have any questions, please record them as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might include them on the next podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.